0: uh we 're jumping in the book of acts uh it's a wonderful it's a wonderful book as we get into and you 've understood that there's two parts to the to this story it's the it's the book of the Gospel of Luke that moves us to Jerusalem and the book of Acts that moves us into the kingdom and as we go into this story, um, you realize there's a whole lot going on. And I'm concerned that as we read this, that we will read it in a way that's, I don't want you to read it in a way that you will miss the deeper meaning. And so, this this is a section uh, that we're just going to take a chunk of, of the first part, and uh, this from Acts three one to the end of chapter four, thirty one or four thirty one. This is the whole a whole um, series of ideas that. That Luke is trying to get across, and so the idea that we 're going to be talking about today is this one healing of the beggar uh, at the beautiful gate but as we uh can we get this on the screen yet? not yet, but Dave will be working on that so but the idea that that we want to focus on is is. What was going on in the life of this beggar? And we're going to look at him and how the Spirit of God works in the heart of an individual. But in particular, uh, later on we're going to hit this issue of uh, prejudice because what I want to want you to know is uh, this beggar was marginalized, an unwanted man, and because of who he was, he was never allowed to go in the temple. We're going to look at this because he represents a whole cast of people that, that are the outcasts, the, those that are unseen, those that are unwanted. And as we get into this uh, passage, there's some really deep meaning going on here. But as we get into this, I want to, I want to share with you uh, a couple of things. And this is where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to look at the meaning of the passage and what some preliminary con. Uh, concepts about how we read and approach the passage, because you will read this rightly as a miracle, but that's not the meaning of the passage. And so we're going to look at the meaning, but the, the healing of the cripple, uh, the the miracle that takes place here, uh, I'm not going to focus on miracles, and that's another series in itself, how God does actual miracles in this world today, but we're going to look at what this meant for them that this is, a, this is a sign again of the Messiah's presence. This is the imminence of God being with us, not only transcendent above all, but he's very present. And when God is present, things just don't stay the same. And there's a healing, but there's a message in the healing is that the Messiah is here and he's setting up the kingdom. And then we're going to be talking about uh, how God uses Peter and John in the in the ministry and the mission as the church develops and grows. And so there's lots of things in this one. But I want to go back and I want to start with this passage as it's been interpreted through the years. There's an Italian painter called Masolino, Masolino de Panicale, And you'll notice he painted this uh, famous story, the, the Healing of the Cripple, but he painted it from an Italian perspective. You notice this picture, and you can't see that if you're listening uh, on the Internet. But you can go find Masolino de Panacale. But you'll see this is very Italian looking. And you'll see the people dressed in the clothes, the clothes at that time. But this has nothing to do with the New Testament temple setting. But in his mind, he took this story and he... Interpreted it according to his time and his day and his imagination. Now the idea that you've got a scene that looks more like the streets of Italy, and instead of looking at a Jewish temple, and that's what we tend to do. We tend to take the scriptures and pull them into our world, and we miss what's going on here. Raphael did the same thing, and the tapestry there in the Saint, uh, in the Sistine Chapel. You'll see the, the pillars, and you'll see these little uh, angels or cherubim or whatever else is around. But there's, a, there's an embellishment of this picture. And the idea is that you will see things that aren't there, but that are read into the passage. And therefore, it's the same problem that we have as we go into this passage. We will also read the Scriptures with our glasses in our day, and we read into the scriptures that which isn't there. So I want to just preliminarily give you some ideas about reading the scriptures. Because I think, I think once you begin to see how you read or how we read as Americans in the 21st century, uh, we, we're not going to get what God is doing. And so here's a couple of things. Jesus, even in that day, had to deal with people who didn't see Jesus. And they didn't have the same view that Christ is. And so Jesus would would say to the Jews at that point, why is it that my language is not clear to you, my my message? Because you are unable to hear what I say. It's not that the message is unclear, but the ability to hear the message or see the message, there's something wrong in the reception That misses the whole meaning. And so the new English Bible says, why do you not understand my language? It's because my revelation is beyond your grasp. If we don't understand because we can't understand, it's beyond us. It means that we need some help and we have that help through the promise of the Holy Spirit. We know that as we get into the uh, into, the, into the book. Now, Jerome had this quote, let us, under, let us understand uh, the holy writ. And again, the word understand is to come under, to align yourself with what the author intended to say. Let us understand, yes, just as it is written, however, let us fire it well in the flame of the Holy Spirit and unfold it with spiritual discernment. Whatever Uh, whatever it seems uh, incongruous or obscure when taken literally. Let the Scriptures be the Scriptures, and don't let your understanding be the authority. Let the Scriptures be your authority, and therefore, as you trust the Spirit of God, He'll give you this understanding. Blaise Pascal said it this way, anyone who seeks to give meaning to the Scripture without taking it directly from Scripture It is a foe to the scripture. And therefore, we want to come back to understand this passage the same way that it was intended to be understood by those at that time and then bring it forward. But to try to understand the Bible, and here's the point, to understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit is trying to read a sundial by moonlight. You won't get it. And you'll misunderstand just like any modern person would that's not going back in that context to read it. And so here's some suggestions of how to read it. One, you want to read the Bible historically. You want to read it uh, and you want to understand that what the Word taught them, the Word teaches us. What the what is the content. What is the understanding? But what they understood is just applicable for us today. But you've got to read it historically in their context. And two, you've got to read it theologically. What the Bible says is what God says. This is an inspired word of God. It's the revelation. This is not a compilation of men's ideas or or opinions or a a good research project that, that Luke put together. This is the actual inspired word revealed to tell us who God is and who we are in relationship and therefore we read the Bible devotionally we don't read the Bible to understand the Bible we read the Bible to understand the author but we read the Bible to understand the author in order to respond to the author in devotion and worship and therefore what your mind comes in to understand move it to your heart, that your heart grasps and values. And so when you read it historically, theologically, devotionally, then you read it personally, that this is God's word to you. And as you read, uh, you read to see how God's going to build your faith, clarify your hope, and intensify your love uh, as he strengthens you through the Spirit's Opening up the Word to you. And as I've said before, when the child of God gets into the Word of God, the Spirit of God makes him into a mature man or woman of God. But not only do we do that personally, we do that corporately. And as a church, as a body, we, we all gravitate to the same message, the same content. And our unity is not because we like each other or we agree on the same thing. Our unity is the fact that we're all tied to Jesus Christ. We're all tied and called by the same one who's called Lord, who is the head of the church. And if you belong to him, you belong to each other. And therefore, we read the Bible as a kingdom community. And as a kingdom community, reading the same book with the same spirit, we're on the same page. And therefore, There's a confidence that's built in those who know the Bible because we are covenant partners with the Holy Spirit. You are, I am, you have been baptized in Christ, you've been sealed with the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who authors the book, and that author is going to tell you about Jesus Christ, and that's yours and that's mine, and we share that. He wrote the book, and he is a covenant partner. And he will help us understand. He will bring to remembrance those things we don't know and help us clarify through questions, through fellowship, through preaching, whatever. And therefore, as we go into this passage, I want to give you something that helped me from a book from Dr. Haddon Robinson. He was the... uh, At one time, the president of Denver Seminary, he was the homiletics preacher at at Dallas, and his book on expositional preaching, and he's known for this uh, with this one sentence. What's the big idea? What's the big idea? (laughs) And so when you read the passage, whatever passage it is, he hones in on one theme and he says, What's the big idea here? There can be several sub themes, but Haddon Robinson's always one to focus because he's a clear thinker. And you've got to get the big idea. And how do you get the big idea is when you listen to the Spirit of God in community to make sure that we're all aligned with the big idea. In general, what the big idea that's happening in in the overall story of Acts, is that in general, Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation on the cross through the Gospels. We see that in Luke, Mark, Matthew, and John. But the purchase of salvation is applied in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit applies that truth and lives it out in the context of the story that you're going to hear today, and in our story as well. So that's, in general, uh, a big idea. It's it's the redemptive story overall from Genesis to Revelation. But when you get into a particular passage, and you ask, what's the big idea of this passage? There's lots of thoughts that we want to study and think about, because in the book of Acts, in Acts 3, it says, uh, sorry, in Acts 1, the disciples began to ask Jesus, who's resurrected now, is it at this time that you're going to restore Israel? God, are you going to, is this the big idea? Is this the timing? Are you going to restore Israel? And they missed they missed it because they didn't understand the overarching theme that it wasn't just about Israel, but it was about restoration. They got that part right. But they were expecting God to do something now to get rid of the Roman oppressive government and their lands and the, and the corrupt, uh, the pharisaical system. And are you going to restore it now? Are you going to... And so the, they had questions. And you are free to ask the questions. Because this is the place, if you don't feel like you can ask God questions, you're not going to get into the whole understanding of what God is doing then and now. But in Acts 3, uh, you begin to understand that God has begun to restore through this story of a beggar what he has been doing all the way through Scripture. And last in the spring, remember we went through uh, the book of Ephesians and looked about the church, and that big idea that was going on is that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the, uh, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. What you see is the kindness of God's heart being revealed, he's manifesting that with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of, all, of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Remember that? And that we're going to see things in heaven and earth being restored. And so just by way of review, remember Ephesians chapter 1 through 6 had this theme. God is integrating and bringing heaven and earth together. He's making it a solid uh, restorative cosmos where God is at work bringing heaven and earth and everything in heaven and earth under the feet of Christ. And that he's going to incorporate us into the body of Christ, chapter 2. That we, by by, being saved and being baptized into Christ, we become an institution, the church of the kingdom of, of God's people. And we are learners to follow Christ, to be imitators of Christ. And therefore, we are involved in the spiritual battle of of going back into a fallen world in order to restore and redeem the fallen world. Now, that was the whole thing of Ephesians. But here in this passage is a little snapshot of the big picture. And what you see in this passage is a big idea, not in the universal sense, not the bird's eye view, but the worm's eye view. (laughs) You're going to see God at work in a particular story. So what is the particular Big idea in this passage of Scripture. And how does it relate to the larger story? And therefore, as you read this, keep in mind these two levels of thinking of understanding. We're going to focus on the particular story. But don't forget, there's something else going on in the background. So, point two. The miracle. This is the healing of the cripple. Now let me suggest and ask: If you took this passage out of chapter of the book of Acts in chapter three, would it make a difference? Would it make a difference? Because there are many healings in Scripture. Jesus healed. Paul will heal. Uh, you'll see this all the way. But why is this particular passage here at this point introduced in chapter three? Would it make a difference if we just kind of skipped it over? Yeah, Jesus does miracles. He heals the cripple. So what? He heals lots of things. But you've got to go back in their time to think, what did this mean? Now, let's look at this cripple guy. What do we know about the cripple? Some distinctive characteristics that we know. One, about beggars in particular. We don't like beggars. We don't want to have beggars... Uh, Beggars are, are, well, there's lots of things you can say about beggars. But one, this was a Jewish beggar. He probably lived in Jerusalem. There are many people came into Jerusalem during this time, but he probably lived there, maybe close by the temple. We don't know. But what we do know, he's probably Jewish because he's hang, hanging out at the temple and has been hanging out at the temple for a long, long time. He's 40 years old. We are told. And we know that this beggar uh, does not have a name. And because his name is not given, that I think is significant because it says this story is not about the beggar. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. Lame man, this isn't about the lame man. But he doesn't have a name. We don't know anything about his family. He says he was carried to the temple when Peter and John saw him, but we don't know whether he carried on a stretcher, was he was he was he carried off the shoulders of was it his friends who carried him? Was it his family? We don't know. We don't know a lot of things about this, except this guy had been begging for a long period of time. And therefore, when Peter and John go to the temple, it was in the afternoon at the 3 o'clock prayer meeting. The Jewish people would pray at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 3 o'clock. And this story starts at the 3 o'clock prayer hour. And so they began to carry him in to set him at the, on the steps. Whether he was there all day or he just got there that afternoon, it wouldn't make a difference for the story. But here's what I think as he was being carried in Peter and John walked by and I don't think Peter or John had any idea that this was going to happen so spontaneously it took place and so as he's walking by this this beggar who's being set down on the steps at probably at the same time something took place and something's happening in the story that is you can read it, and then you have to read, be, you read behind it. But as they set him down on the steps at the beautiful gate. Now this gate is the gate into worship at the temple uh, courts. There's the the courts of the women. But to get into that gate, this is called the beautiful gate. And there are 15 steps up into that temple. Those are the 15 Psalms of Ascent in uh, in in the Psalms, but he was not there in that place. He was on the outside of that temple because you couldn't let someone who is uh, defective go into the temple area. It was not allowed for handicapped or crippled or people who who were diseased. They were not allowed in the temple area because they would contaminate. And therefore... They always stood outside of the temple. Now, imagine if you were a cripple, if you were the lame man, and you saw many people going in and out of the temple. And this was Pentecost. And now people, the international people, who came to Jerusalem. He saw them come around. He was there for, he was 40 years old. So you know that Jesus Christ passed him, and the disciples passed him many times. He was well known because they dropped him off at the same place probably every time. He had his routine down. And they knew him and he saw them. But this day in particular was the day of his salvation. Why Jesus didn't heal him before? Why, why the disciples didn't address him before? But this was the timing. And therefore, when Peter and John walked up to him at that time, he was set down and he started begging. Alms, alms, just crying out. Anybody want to help me? Alms, alms, He wasn't blind. He could see, but he was crying out of his need. Now in your mind, put yourself in the position of the beggar. What did he feel? He'd been doing this day after day. He was used to people passing him by. He was used to people not looking at him in the eye, because I don't know how you guys do this, but there is, there is a place that I go to when I go to the prison. I come off one interstate section, and, I, and this, I, I pass by this particular place a lot, and there is a beggar who stands at this interstate section, and he's suntanned and burned, and he makes lots of money being a beggar. When I go to the homeless shelter in Newcastle, a guy told me, I can make a pretty decent living begging. Actually, last year I got $26,000 begging. If I go to Florida, it's even more, because I can stand out there, just beg, and people will drive, and they won't roll down the window. But if you drive up to a beggar, if you make eye contact, there's going to be an expectation that you're going to, Hey. And so what happens is with beggars, they don't get eye contact. People look away because they don't want to commit themselves to an expectation that you're going to give. So a lot of beggars are never seen. And therefore, this beggar is used to that. He said, says, oh, people pass me all the time and they don't look at me. But here he's crying, alms, alms. And Peter stops with John and they look at this beggar. Now the fact that they stop to look at the beggar is significant. We don't see people who are marginalized. We don't see the unseen. We don't want to see that which is uncomfortable to see. And therefore, when it gets into the ugly parts of our society, we prejudice our thinking by saying, we don't want to see those things, and we don't turn. But Peter and John this day turn to him, and uh, they focus their eyes on him. Now here's, here's some other things that you want to think about the lame man. Uh, again, uh, he knew that by being at that temple, spot was a good place because it's location, location, location. This is a place where they can come and he can get a lot of information. But the focus is not only on him. When you read this passage, think about the other people that are in the passage. How about John and Peter? Who else is there besides the lame man and Peter and John? There's somebody else there that you may not see, because it's the Holy Spirit who is also there. And when you see Peter and John, uh, let me get to the next slide. The the Peter and John uh, and the Holy Spirit are there at work. But who's not there? Who's not there in this passage? Let's see if I can get this on the screen. It's not coming in. Who's not there are other beggars. You don't hear other beggars because there's not just this one man. There are a number of beggars on those steps, but you don't see them or hear about them because they're not the focus. The other disciples are not there. Mary is not there. Satan is not there. The Pharisees aren't there. The Gentiles aren't there. And therefore, this this is a focal point focused on The lame man, John, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there's lots going on in this passage. But now, what's going on? We've talked about the meaning of the message, the miracle, and here's what you need to understand. This story is not about the lame man. It's not about the layman. If you hear the story about the layman, you will misunderstand what's going on here. Because this is about the message that the Messiah, the one who was crucified, the one who was resurrected, the one who has ascended, the one who poured out his Holy Spirit, he is actively involved in this scene. And this is called the beginning of, of the the work of the Holy Spirit. The book is called the book of Acts. I would call it the book of the Holy Spirit acting. And therefore, this is a message about the Messiah coming to introduce the work of the Spirit, bringing the kingdom in for those people who really don't know him. This is called the eschatology, the study of the end times. We think about that in terms of prophecy and Israel taking place. But it also means it's the study of the last things uh, that when Christ begins to open the church, you're in the last days when the Spirit of God comes in. And so here's the beginning of the story and He's going to be moving the story until Jesus returns and takes us all home. But here in the book of Acts is the opening up of the work of the Spirit for the first time in the history of the Jewish people to understand something that they had heard about because the eschatology of, of this healing is significant. Now, Jewetta read this passage in Isaiah 35. I want to go back and highlight this real quickly. In Isaiah, 30, Isaiah 35, the prophet gives us an indication of when the messiah comes what he's going to do and what he says in isaiah 35 if you get your bible and go back and read this is a messianic prophecy and the prophecy is 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 powerful because listen to this passage just and i'm just going to read a, a part of it the wilderness and the desert will be glad the land, the, the desert, the wilderness, there's going to be a joy in the wilderness and a desert that will rejoice. And the Arabah, the dried places, will rejoice and blossom. Dryness, wilderness, desert blossoms and rejoices. And, and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel. And Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord. This is the prophecy, the majesty of our God. And therefore, because God is going to do something in the wilderness and the desert, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Behold, uh, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. The recompense of God will come, and he will save you. The idea, the prophecy that when the Messiah comes, things are going to be radically changed, and therefore, he says in verse 5, "...the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the the lame will be like the deer, and the tongue of the mute will be shouting for joy." For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, and the scorched earth will become a pool. The thirsty ground with springs of water and the haunt of jackals its resting place. And you get the idea that when the Messiah comes, everything is going to be restored. Everything is going to be blessed. And therefore the desert and the parched land will be glad. Why? Because God is at work. They will rejoice and therefore, you understand the lame will leap like a deer. This is a sign that when the Messiah heals, it's a messianic sign that, that the Jews would understand. The prophetic eschatology cites that the healing of the lame is one example that God is restoring Israel. Now, why is that important? Because that same God is doing the same work today for people who are in the wilderness and in the desert. We pray, don't we? Thy kingdom come. What happens if the kingdom comes? Glory comes. Rejoicing comes. Restoration comes. And this is what the Jewish people understood. The prophecy of the future is now present. And therefore, as they, as they understood this one little part of the lame being healed, they understood something of the whole and this is what they call, in literature, a synecdoche. One part represents the whole. You say, he's got good wheels, or she's all brains. That's, not, that's one part representing the whole, because it's not just the wheels, it represents the whole car, the brains represents the whole person. But this healing of the beggar means that this prophecy is being fulfilled. The God has broken in time to restore the wilderness, to, 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 to flourish so that the crocuses blossom. And so God is at work. And so when he looks down to this beggar, when, when Peter looks at the beggar and he says, Look at me, look at me. What did Peter see? What did the lame man see? What did the Holy Spirit see? What did the people see? Peter understood that the Spirit of God was opening up the kingdom and all the power to heal this lame man was going to be taking on a strengthening in his ankles and in his feet. And for the first time in 40 years, because this man had been lame from birth, he stood up. Now, can you get a hold of this? What's it like to stand up for the first time as a 40-year-old man? To never have walked and all of a sudden finding your, your thighs and your muscles strengthen and you're standing up. This is not just about the miracle of healing. This is about the fact that the Messiah will touch any blind man, any lame man, any diseased man. And this is the mark of the Messiah. This is what Peter saw when he looked at him. He didn't see the man. He saw the Messiah healing the man. We don't see it that way. We see people for as they are, but we don't see the healing because we don't see the kingdom at work. But when, when Peter saw him, he said, look at me. Look at me. Because Peter wanted to see what was inside this man's heart. And that was all that was said. Peter didn't say you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. He didn't say you need to go to church. You need to figure this all out and get it intellectually clear so that you can have faith. No. He broke in and healed him. And that's what God does. It's not based on your response. It's based on God's working and redeeming. So when you read that passage, you've got to read it with a sense of God is at work bringing the future of the kingdom to the person to heal him so that that person would blossom and bloom just like those crocuses in the desert. That he would no longer be the beggar that he was always there. But this is the ministry. And the ministry that Peter and John began was to make beggars brothers. He who had been on the outside of the temple. Was healed. And what the first thing he did was. Peter took him by the arm. And they walked into the temple together. That which was marginalized. Was made part of the family. That was, which was rejected. Now found acceptance for the first time. Because he could go into worship with the brothers, because the prejudice, the, the, the rejection was gone. And the ministry is to making beggars brothers. He didn't have anything to offer. He walked in with dirty clothes. He didn't go home and change and take a bath, because he didn't need to, because when he went into the temple, he had righteous robes, not his, but of Christ. And he was covered there and accepted there. Because of the cross, that lame man can walk, worship, and start all over. Because of the cross, every man can walk and worship and start all over. What do Peter and John see? They don't see the man. They see the Messiah. This is God at work. This is God at work. If you read this passage and you don't get to that part, this is God at work. You'll miss the passage. And therefore, we like Masolino can take this passage and reinterpret it to what we think, but we'll miss it. What well, we need to understand, as you get into this passage, what else did Paul Peter say about this? Because there's something about this healing. It's not about the healing. It's not about the man. It's about what was happening in the whole community. That was a message that the Messiah is starting to move out in the book of Acts, and therefore the call, the call to repent, the call to be changed. You know, this beggar, get this picture, the next day he wakes up, the next day he wakes up, whether he's married or at home or on homeless, we don't know, but the next day he wakes up and now he can walk, he can walk. So what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to go back down to the temple and beg, Wait a minute, I can't beg anymore. I, I don't have any, I, I'm, not, I'm no longer a beggar. Uh, and God disturbed that whole identity for 40 years. I, I, what are you going to do now? Well, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I, and he dumbfounded. He's lost again because he's been introduced to a whole new way of living that his whole identity as a beggar has been destroyed. The old things pass away. Well, you have to find some work. I don't know how to work. Yeah, you have to find, you can't beg anymore. Well, I did pretty good begging, but I can't. And so he's introduced a whole new thinking for this person who's a beggar as he does for you and me. Sometimes when you become a Christian, you are more disturbed by the new things you'll have to learn because you have to give up the comfort of the old things. And Christ salvation means you leave the death you leave the darkness you leave the world and you start to learn and for that reason this beggar brother now needs to be a disciple and come into the community that loves beggars and no longer sees them as they were but sees them as who God has made them to be there's a whole lot more to this story but here's the point Jesus Christ is out to restore every man. He's integrating heaven and earth. And if there's something that's blocking you from walking with Christ, he will heal it. If there's something that you need, he will do it. But you need to go to Christ. And Christ's Spirit will come to you. And that's the ministry that we see here happening among us. Because as a community of people, we know that God's moving in places that we don't want to see. To save us from ourselves to teach us to be people that he wants to blossom and glorify and strengthen and change. This is good stuff, good stuff. Do you see people as Jesus does? Are you listening to the Spirit as Peter would be? God is building his church through you and me. If and only if we hear the Spirit and walk with him and see people as he does. There's a lot to this story. We'll continue next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, your ways are not our ways. They're certainly not what we would expect as we put you into our context or think, try to fit you into our thinking. But you are so much more. And your kindness that reached out to that no-name lame guy brought him into the body of Christ to love him and restore him. You save us on the cross and you save us from ourselves and you lead us into a suffering world where the prejudice is taken care of, the guilt and the shame is taken care of because you restore our soul. Father, I pray at the beautiful gate you would make your people beautiful and that the glory of God would be manifested in all of our lives. Now, Father, give us your eyes to see people as you do and we just thank you that you will do that and help us do the ministry that you've called us to. And we ask for your glory and we ask for our growth. In Jesus' name, amen.